Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. You are in your life called to some things by God. Perhaps he specifically called you to the career that you're in and that's where God wants to use you in this world. Pretty obvious, he's called us to the families that we have. No one chooses that. We can't, we didn't have anything to do with that. The parents that I have, God has called me to that family. And in those commitments that God has brought me to, God expects me never to quit. feel like you're called? Whether it's your career path or your journey in life, there's a good chance God has designed it just for you. But what about when things get tough? Are you still called? Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is presenting a message on this exact topic. He's titled it, Help for When You Feel Like Giving Up. To download the free study notes, go to focalpointradio.org. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 27. Well, let's get started. Recently heard a sermon about uh, David and the life of King David, and the thing that this preacher characterized David as, the one word that he used to describe David was the word optimism. They said if ever there was a guy who could look at a bad situation and find the good in it or see from God's perspective what needed to be done and have the courage and the faith to do it, it was David. And I thought to myself, as he used this as a point in the sermon, that there were those times in David's life where he was filled with optimism. But as we'll see this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 27, even guys who have a lot of faith and walk with God, they struggle from time to time with feelings of despondency, despair, frustration, pessimism which leads them to a line that you wouldn't expect guys like this to cross. But David crosses a line, I've called it this morning, quitting, giving up. He cashes it in, he says, forget it. At a time when you might expect him to say, no, God has delivered me so many times, God has done so much for me, that you might expect him to have a, a huge, bolstered sense of courage and confidence. Instead, though, the daily, weekly, month in, month out, year after year struggles of his life in one particular area had worn down his courage, his confidence, and his outlook that was once godly and led him to the line of despair. If you have a Bible this morning, why don't you look at it. First Samuel chapter 27, take a peek at that because it's important that you see it for yourself, that in the scripture we have godly men like David who feel the same kind of feelings that most of us are tempted with. And if you haven't been tempted with it, Lately, you will be because Satan loves to see God's people look at their commitments and say, I've had enough. It's too painful. It's too difficult. I quit. You felt like quitting lately? Perhaps a, uh, a job you've had, a commitment you made, a ministry you got involved in, maybe a relationship. Those kinds of feelings are feelings that all of us can experience no matter how closely we walk with God because it is an area that is attacked day in and day out. And frankly, we live in a culture that sees quitting as just a, another option in life. As a matter of fact, for me to preach against quitting and giving up this morning, for many people, seems odd. It seems foreign because it just seems like a, a, an alternative, a passive, amoral 
alternative. It's just, it's just one of those things. If your job is too difficult, you, you leave. If the neighborhood you're living in is, is you know, not comfortable anymore, not what you want, you, you, you move to a new one. If the church you're attending doesn't meet your needs anymore, doesn't seem to be the place, then you go to a new church. That kind of thinking in our culture has led in our day to the highest rates of divorce, the highest rates of job change, the highest rates of really disloyalty in just about any department you want to research. We have seen quitting as a viable option. This morning I want to remind you that God's perspective on things is completely different. In the church and in our culture as we as Christians walk into this world and into the secular marketplace, we need to be people that demonstrate a completely different value. It's a value that says I'm going to keep going. I'm going to endure to the end. I'm not going to give up, I'm not going to quit, and I'm not going to back down even when it's tough. Though we can sympathize with the first verse of chapter 27, I want us to be sure this morning that we guard our hearts against it. Take a look at it with me. Verse number one, the text says, David thought to himself, and it always begins there. The thoughts that we entertain, what goes on in our minds, the things we repeat to ourselves, the things that we believe in our heart. And David's thought was not a good one. It was a negative one. It was a pessimistic thought. He says, one of these days, I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. This isn't going to get better. I can't live with this frustration and pain anymore. I need relief. And so David, with that thought, decides this, bottom of verse 1, the best thing I can do is escape. I need to leave. I need to leave Israel. I need to leave this nation. I need to leave God's people. I need to leave the congregation of people that I am called to shepherd as the up-and-coming anointed prince of Israel. I need to leave them, and I need to go, it says. Here's the logic based on some real pessimistic thinking. I need to go to the land of the Philistines. That ought to send a chill down the spine of any well-read Jewish person in the Old Testament who thinks about their anointed prince, the one chosen to be king, going to the Philistines, a word synonymous with moral corruption with idol worship, with immorality. The most wicked ancient Near Eastern culture, the culture of the Philistines. David says, I'm just going to have to go hang out with them. I'll have to leave where I'm at. I'm going to have to stop wandering around in the southern portions of Judah, and I'm just going to have to cross into the borders of the enemy. I'll go to the Philistines because then, very bottom of verse 1, Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. It's important for us to recognize as you turn, and if I, I hope that you would, to Romans chapter 8. Keep your finger in 1 Samuel 27. I want you to realize that in the Christian life, God's not just warning us against the wrong behaviors. He is oftentimes prohibiting us from thinking thoughts that lead to those wrong behaviors. And here is a verse that I know has been quoted to you many times. It's been rationalized and justified and, and, and explained away, but it is a truth that we need to recognize prevents certain thoughts from being entertained by the Christian. There is, in this passage, in Romans chapter 8, no place for the kind of thoughts that David was apparently comfortable thinking at this particular juncture in his life. Look at it with me. You know the passage. It's familiar to you, but I want you to see it. Verse number 28 of Romans chapter 8. Here's what it says. Note it carefully with your pins poised. The text says, we know that in most things, God works for the good of those who love him. 
You see that there? Circle the word most. It's a very important he word in this sentence. But you can't understand this passage without that word. Do you see it? We know that in most things, God works to get... You have that there, right? Okay, I'm sorry. We know that in almost everything that happens, God works for the good of those who love him. No, that's not it either, is it? It can't mean all. Of course, this Greek word must mean something a little bit different. You know the explanation of the Greek word all, right? Have you heard this before? All means all, and that's all all means. <laughs> the text says we know that in all things. Not all things. All things. All things. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Now, there is a qualifier here. If you're a non-Christian this morning and you don't love God, if you're not called according to his purpose, if you can't look in your past and see a place where you've committed your life to Christ by repenting of your sins and putting your trust fully in him to save you, if you can't think of that and if you're not in that group, then I can't help you here. Stuff that happens to you, I can't explain, and I can't give you any encouragement or comfort for. But if you are a Christian, and you know you are, you know that you've committed your life to Christ, you have said about your sinful, independent state, I reject that, and I put my hope squarely in Christ, nothing else, to save me from my sin, and one day bring me into the presence of God. If that's an experience you've had, then this passage applies to you, and the text says that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. Now, that's a key phrase because it defines what God's doing. The next verse describes it in, in clear detail. Look at it, verse number 29. It says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined, here's the purpose clause, to be, what, conformed to the likeness of his son, that, we might be, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He's going to be the prototype. He's going to set the standard, and God is going to work everything together for that good that we might be more like Christ. Now I think to myself, why couldn't God have taken this shepherd boy who had such a tender heart and such a passion and zeal for God and had the old prophet Samuel go out there and anoint him with oil and show that he was the next king and then bring him on to Gibeah and enthrone him in the palace and kick Saul out and say, forget it, here's your new king. Why didn't it just happen that way? Why did God have to send David into the palace to get picked on by the king, to, get je to have jealousy in Saul's mind, enrage him into this vindictive attitude, to end up having him kicked out of the, of the royal city, wandering around in the desert. Why did God have to do that to him? Well, if you're in the midst of it, you don't understand it. All you know is it's painful and it's difficult. You try and trust God through it. But the Bible apparently... I would think this principle would work in all directions, not just the New Testament Christians, but all throughout the Old Testament people of God, that God has a purpose and a plan. And that even in the worst and most painful situations, God wants to work in us a certain character. And when you're called to a, such a high position in God's economy, the king of Israel, God's going to send you to school. And he uses these painful situations that empty him completely of his own confidence and force him to rely completely on God. He uses that so that when he's in office, when he is the king, when he is ruling with the scepter in his hand, he'll be fully dependent upon God. And so God says, you're not done yet. I got another course for you to take. I got another trial for you to live through. I got some more suffering to shape you and mold you and to make your character what I want it to be. But in the middle of his studies in the seminary of the desert, David decides to quit. I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. It's too hard. 
I don't know what kind of pessimistic thoughts creep into your mind, and I don't know which commitments they may impact, but you are in your life called to some things by God. There are clearly things in your life that God has called you to. Perhaps He specifically called you to the career that you're in, and that's where God wants to use you in this world. Pretty obvious, He's called us to the families that we have. No one chooses that. We can't, we didn't have anything to do with that. The parents that I have, God has called me to that family. Relationships I have with my wife and my children, God has called me to those relationships. In my own life, the church family He's called me to, He's called me to that. He has brought me to that. And in those commitments that God has brought me to, God expects me never to quit. It is always, as one book title puts it, it is always too soon to quit. And when it comes to callings in life that God has called me to, I don't have the right to quit. And in this passage, we see that the catalyst and foundation that prompts David to quit is his pessimistic thoughts. I look at Romans 8 and I see in that passage there's no room for that kind of pessimism in the Christian life. There is no room for that kind of pessimism about my life, my job, my family, my wife, my children, my parents, my ministries, for me to have those kinds of pessimistic thoughts. Let me put it this way. If you have a pessimistic thought, it didn't come from God. <laughs> put it that way. It may come from a lot of places, but if you are thinking pessimistically about your family, your ministry, your involvement in some kind of, of commitment that you've committed yourself to or something that God has called you to, those bad thoughts about your future, like David's here when he says, oh, I'm going to be killed by Saul one day. I guess I'm going to have to quit. That didn't come from God. It may come from yourself. It may come from your exhaustion. It may have come from how tired you are. It may have come from the enemy. It came from wherever, but it didn't come from God's Spirit. I put it this way on your outline. If you're taking notes this morning, be sure and catch this. You and I can't tolerate pessimism. We cannot tolerate pessimism. I put it this way. Don't tolerate pessimism. If you have a pessimistic downer thought about the future of your career, your job, your family, your relationships, or the things that God has had you commit to, cast it out. I can't, I can't tolerate that. If David would have had that thought, and I'm sure he had it before, and said, I'm not going to entertain that thought because that thought has no compatibility with being a follower of Yahweh. If he would have thought that and said, I can't entertain those thoughts. God is doing something, and he's doing something good because he loves me. I don't understand it, but I'm not going to think badly. I'm not going to think one day I'll be killed because Samuel made it clear I'm not going to be killed. I'm going to be the king. Jonathan, the son of the king, said, you're not going to be killed. You're going to be the king of Israel one day. And even Saul himself in chapter 26, Six said, you're going to be king one day. God is going to prosper. You're going to do great. He didn't believe those thoughts. Those were the optimistic, faith-based, biblical thoughts. Instead, he was willing to say, ah, I'm going to be killed out here one day. I'm so tired. I'm so exhausted. I can't go on. I'm going to escape to the most wicked nation in, in the ancient Near East, and I'm going to go hang out there. This is the guy who said in things like Psalm 1, I'm not going to sit in the seat of the mock. I'm not going to walk in the way of the, of the wicked. I'm not going to hang out with evil people. Psalm 26, what a great psalm. He says, I, I despise all those evil ways. I'm not going to be counted with the sinners. And here he is saying, in, a, in the midst of his pessimism, I, it's worth it because I can't take it anymore. Jot this reference down. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, verse number 10 and 11. Here is Israel being spanked. And when you're being spanked, that's a time to think pessimistic thoughts, right? <laughs> it is bad. And here is God with Israel over his knee, spanking Israel, sending them to Babylon for 70 years in exile. He is in his parental role, chastising his children. 
And in the midst of the spanking, he says, here's what he says, Jeremiah 29. He says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Hmm? <laughs> Did your dad ever say that when he was spanking you? Oh, this is for your own good son. This is, you know, he's just like, what? No, this hurts. It's painful. Stop, right? And he's sitting here giving you lectures about how this is good for you. Well, it's no different with God. He may be putting you through right now in your situation some of the most difficult days you've had relationally with that person. And if he is, God is not saying, think bad thoughts, think pessimistically, think about relief, think about options, think about quitting. He wants you to say, you know what? Through all of this, I'm going to work something together in your life that is, as he put in the words of this prophet, to give you a hope and a future. He has a future and he has a hope for you. That's not pie in the sky, lack of realism. That's biblical Christianity. I grew up in an environment, like many of you, is very reality-based, right? You don't get too excited about too many things. You don't get too optimistic about too many things. Like this line goes, you've heard this maybe, is they say, a pessimist, have you heard this before? A pessimist is an optimist with experience. <laughs> you know, because people will teach you and tell you, well, you know, you just, you got to grow up. I remember thinking uh, some optimistic thoughts about what God might do with church. And people say, ah, you know, you're just a kid. You're young. Don't, you know, you'll grow out of that kind of optimism. When you get the experience of life and the pains and trials, of the, God will, you know, kind of temper your, your your, your faith-based thoughts. They didn't put it that way, but I'm thinking it doesn't seem to fit. If I ever get to the place where I am a pessimist and think pessimistically about the future of my life, my relationships, my family, my, my job, my ministry, then something's wrong because I see clearly in the Bible there's no place for it. As a matter of fact, here's a good example. You may want to jot this down. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul is in the midst of the worst possible scenario for him. He's in jail. He's got a death sentence on his head. He's lined up to be killed. He's been whipped and beaten and flogged. And he is under Roman arrest. And he writes the Philippians from jail, and he says to the Philippian church, he says, hey, guys, if I don't get out of here and they kill me, that'll be really good because I'll get to go meet God. And if I get out, I'll get to do more ministry and serve you. He says, whether by life or by death, Christ will be exalted in my body. I don't even know which to choose. Both of them sound like such good options. Now, was he just a lunatic? What's wrong with this guy? Something bad happens. We come home and unload on our spouses to how awful it is to work for that person in that place. And isn't it terrible how, how our situation is? Oh, look, we're stuck in this neighborhood or we're stuck in this house. We're stuck in this job. We're stuck with these in-laws or relatives or whatever it is. We sit here and just explode with all this negativism. I'm not asking you for to be a, a foolish, you know, just unrealistic person. I'm just saying there's no place for pessimism in your life. And there's no place for it in your thinking. Oh, bad stuff is difficult stuff. Painful stuff hurts. I realize that. But I don't have the biblical right to entertain thoughts like David when he says, I'm going to be destroyed by Saul one day. The best thing I can do is quit. Because that's in essence what he said. I'll go hang out with the enemy for a while. Back to 1 Samuel 27, I hope that point is clear to you. You and I have no right to entertain pessimistic thoughts. When you sense it, when you feel it, when you have one, mm, say no, out. Can't have that. I just can't think that way. There's no place for that. Verse number two describes his exodus 
from God's promised land, from God's chosen people. And the text says that David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, think this one through. Here is David with his band of 600 soldiers. Now, we've learned about these people before. We've heard them described many times. They went from 400 to 600, and they're traveling with him kind of nomadically in the southern parts of Judah in Israel. But this is the first time, if you'll notice in the next verse, that the narrator goes out of his way to explain that it's not just 600 soldiers. The narrator wants us to recognize in verse 3 that it was more than that. David and his men settled in Gath, the most wicked place in the most wicked city, in the most wicked nation, the enemies of God's chosen people, with a wicked king Achish, Achish rather. And then it adds this phrase, each man had his family with him. Now that's the first time that this scriptural text in the book of Samuel has tried to get us to think about guys bouncing, you know, three-year-olds on their knee, or about dads with their 13-year-old daughters there next to, to them, or about moms and dads sitting around a table with, you know, the nine-year-old and the six-year-old and the four-year-old. This is the first time we have this image come into our minds that it wasn't just 600 men. It was 600 men and their families. And then he goes on to explain in the rest of this verse, David had his two wives with him. And it describes not only their names, it gives us where they're from. Here's a little description of the family. This is huge, and I think it's telling for us to realize that the narrator grow, goes to great pains to reveal to us and broaden our image that David, when he bailed out, took a bunch of people with him. That when David left, he taught not just 600 soldiers how to quit, he taught 600 soldiers and their families and his own wives how to quit. He marched off with over a thousand people, that's a conservative estimate, and said to God's chosen people in God's promised land, people he was chosen to defend and protect and one day shepherd, he said, come on guys, we're gonna die out here in the desert. Let's go. You and I have no right to entertain pessimistic thoughts. A wise warning from our Bible teacher, Pastor Mike Fabares. You're listening to Focal Point, and we'll pick up this important subject again tomorrow. Our message is called, Help for When You Feel Like Giving Up. And remember, you can listen again online anytime at focalpointradio.org. Well, we're covering a difficult passage of Scripture today, and it may have stirred up some emotions in your own heart. But here at Focal Point, we're committed to teaching exactly what the Bible says, not sidestepping around the tough sections to make people more comfortable. If you believe in our straightforward approach to Bible teaching, would you give today to support this ministry? We want to continue getting the gospel message out to people who need to know the truth of God's Word. Through your generosity, we can deliver Pastor Mike's expositional teaching by internet, podcast, app, and hundreds of radio stations nationwide. When you give a gift to Focal Point today, we'll say thanks by sending you a copy of an encouraging book from Nate Pickowitz called How to Eat Your Bible, A Simple Approach to Learning and Loving the Word of God. Maybe you want to read God's Word for yourself, but you don't know where to start or perhaps the long books and strange names feel overwhelming to you. Whatever the case, How to Eat Your Bible, 
will help you cultivate an appetite for lifelong study. You'll find practical guidance for overcoming the hurdles that have kept you from making Bible study a regular part of your life. Request your copy by calling us at 888-320-5885 or by going online to focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. Now, even if you can't give today, we still want to hear from you. And when you let us know you're listening, we'll send you a free Bible timeline pamphlet. There's no cost or obligation. Our website again is focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again Wednesday as we continue the series called Don't Quit, right here on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. You know, it's an honor to be with you every day, helping you explore the depths of Scripture. But I want to be clear, no amount of Bible knowledge is ever going to save you. Be sure where you stand with God. Get in touch with us. We'd love to pray with you and for you. Visit us today at focalpointradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.